Ready? Ready, guys? Yeah. All right. Welcome back to Insight Flicks. This is our audio podcast where we talk about everything in the world of movies and television and geek stuff. Uh, my name is Mike, and like always, I'm here with Richard and Raymond, who are my cohorts and partner crime. Uh, we're going to be talking about some kind of recent headlines in in film because actually this was a surprisingly busy last couple of days uh, concerning. Has it been? Yeah, because usually the last couple of weeks have kind of been. I haven't slow. been paying attention to nothing. So, <laughs> well, in in the in the in the in the in the realm of like shockers, there's some big shockers that came out today, or at least one one big news item that came out today. But you know, shock me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, obviously, we were talking about the, the the Marvel Studio executive, Victoria Alonso, has exited. But we'll talk about that a yeah. little bit later. We also want to be talking about Cocaine Bear. Me and Rich saw this movie on VOD. And we we'll want to talk yeah. about that really quick. Uh, I saw Boston Strangler, which was a, a Hulu ex, uh, exclusive of a Fox Searchlight true crime thriller, which I thought was pretty decent. And I, I want to get your thoughts on Pi, uh, Raymond, because you went to a special screening, a a 25th anniversary special screening of Pi, which is the Darren Aronofsky's uh, feature film debut. Yeah. Let's start with that. Let's start with Pi. Because this okay. was a special 25th anniversary where director Darren Aronofsky was there. He had a Q&A. It was in L.A. It was in L.A.? Yeah, it was it was at uh, at the TCL, the, at the Shining Theater. Okay, cool. And so, who else was there? Who else was there for the Q and A? It was uh, well, the the lead actor of the film, uh, Sean Goulet. Yes, it? yes. Which I think he was like, and, he was uh, uh, I believe it was Aronofsky's like college room buddy, or yes, they, they they talked about that. <laughs> okay. At the, at the at the they did the Q and A before or not it wasn't even the Q and A because they had the interviewer there mm, yeah. but they did all that uh, be, uh, before the movie which I found kind of interesting and it was all being live streamed uh, across uh, IMAX's uh, I, I think I don't know globally or just across the United States but okay. it was being live streamed um, uh, in all the IMAX theaters. Mm. But uh, something that was kind of cool was that uh, once that live stream ended, you know, they had to take down all the equipment. So the interviews and stuff kind of just kept going. <laughs> oh, so you were there. So, so yeah, so it was longer. Uh-huh. It was like an extended version. But, um, uh, I, I mean, it was really cool because I think mean, Clint, Clint Mansell was there, the composer, and um, um, Matthew... Uh, Libotique, is, is that how I pronounce his name? The uh, cinematographer, yes. The cinematographer, uh, Oscar-winning cinematographer now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, was was there, and um, who, who, another one of the actors of the film, uh, I, I don't remember, I don't remember his name, but he's he's had, I guess, uh, minor roles in multiple uh, Aronofsky films. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, Stanley Herman, and... Um, is he that guy in Billions, Mike? Uh, no, I think you're talking about Ben um, Shankman? Ben Shankman. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think you're talking about Mark uh, Margolis. Oh, there's people dying up there. Yeah. Is that him? The, the guy who was in Better Call Saul? Or no, no. Be- um, well, maybe no, he was in Better uh, Call Saul. S- Stanley Herman, that actor. Okay. Oh. He's, he's just, he's just, uh, not, he's just like in a, a couple of Aaron Oski's film, early films. Okay. Uh, and uh, the, the other person there was uh, the, the producer of the film. I forgot, I forgot the producer's name, but he produced um, Pi. 
Requiem for a Dream and The Fountain. So, and then he's produced other things after, but those were the, the Aronofsky connections. And um, the, yeah, I mean, the whole Q&A was interesting. Uh, so the, the thing that I found mo- most interesting was that um, Aronofsky said that he, he, you know, he, he grew up a big fan of uh, 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 Jim Jar- Jarmish. Or, oh, and, yeah. um, or, well, he pronounced it. I never pronounced it. I heard it pronounced it this way, but he heard, pronounced it Jim Jarmusch. I'm like, that's probably how you pronounce it. By the way. Oh, yeah. Anyway. yeah. But, um, but he's, a, he's a fellow New Yorker or maybe a New Jersey yeah, but, filmmaker. But what, what, what I found interesting is he said that one of the things he uh, loved about him was that he would always kind of own his films. Like he would kind of like license them when oh, he would. Interesting. Um, yeah. He would just kind of license his movies out for a couple of years and then he would own them again in the end. So uh, he'd never lose them, his ownership of the of these films. So when he sold Pi, he he made the deal that he would get it back twenty five years later. Oh, interesting. And that's the reason that's the reason that they were doing this screening because they, they they just he just got the rights back. Mm. And um, and I and I thought that I thought that was kind of just fascinating. Now that he's having all this success, he was able to kind of do this deal with IMAX. Yeah, I mean, it kind of co- coincides with his Oscar. Uh, run for the whale i think he was probably in los angeles for 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 because he was just probably attending the oscars i regretted not bringing a poster man because like (laughs) i was i i I was like right next to all of them like and i i I was i was gonna i was gonna wait at least like you know hang out and talk with him for a minute and get a photo but then like uh like their publicist or something started started uh uh came out and it's like you guys could talk to them and everything but no photos you could just get autographs you oh. can just get autographs. Oh. And I'm like, it's usually the opposite. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I, and and everyone there had like little autograph books. I'm like, that's not cool. You got to have a poster. You know what I mean? That's 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 the, what makes it special. But yeah, I didn't bring anything. <laughs> oh, by by the way, Stanley Herman. You said he was there. He is the the older guy who is in the train in Pie. He kind of the guy who sings a song in Pie. He made the trailer mm-hmm. cut. I remember that. Um. So yeah, apparently he's in, in all of uh, or most of um, uh, Aronofsky's films. So he does he personally know uh, Stanley Herdman? Uh, yeah. Well, he he said they he says that he met him because uh, when they were when they were making the film, he was just a an, an actor that was kind of just doing commercials and <laughs> just getting work, and he met him and uh, I, I forgot he's where he said he met him. But he 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 met, he met him really quick, and he's like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hire you. I'm gonna I'm going to come back to you. And like a month later, he was making the film. So he hired him. Yeah. For those who don't know, Pi is a movie that came out in 1998. It was black and white. It's kind of a psychological thriller. I would say it's in the vein of, of Eraserhead, that type. Um, Very surreal. It kind of set in the near future where uh, a guy named Max, who is a, a number theorist, kind of a computer genius or mathematical genius. And he's trying to find out uh, kind of a secret code for the wall street for wall street. And uh, there's, you know, intrigue, p- political intrigue, uh, corruption, paranoia. It's yeah, really just I, a paranoid movie. Yeah. I had never seen the complete movie before. And, you know, for a student film or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, how they made it, it, it is impressive, but I was very surprised by just how simple it was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very simple. And then, See, I was I checked it out again this weekend too because I knew we were going to talk about it, and I was shocked at how much it was just about kind of this genius who just you know, and it it reminded me of other kind of '90s films like 
Goodwill Hunting, where we kind of were just fascinated by like people who were just geniuses, like young geniuses, un, unmatched or uh, un, uh, uh, you know, people who we don't under, really necessarily understand. And uh, no, but I, I feel like uh, Goodwill Hunting has just a little bit more layers to it. Oh, Goodwill Hunting has a definitely storyline. Yeah. <laughs> where Pi is more about paranoia. I feel, but I feel Pi was really just more of a showcase for for them as filmmakers. Yeah. I guess this filmmaking team, what they were able kind of kind of all put together because it's a very visual movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, visual the, simple. The, uh, I mean, the visually story, simple. The story. The story is just an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I thought the whole fascinating about what's so fascinating about the movie was this idea of like uh, number theory or, or, you know, like, yeah, the, I, I the idea of pi is the, the uh, you know, a mathematical kind of equation and they go, you know, yeah, and trying to find, I'm trying to find this like patterns and, and, and life that would kind of break into, um, uh, wall street. I mean, people, pe- people try to do things like that when it comes to like, oh, you know, winning lottery. Yeah. And stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, but, I mean, and it, but it, with the movie itself, it, I think you see a little bit about who Darinovsky is because it has, it deals with religion too. It deals with kind of this, yeah. <laughs> it deals with uh, uh, paranoia. It deals with kind of uh, camera and techniques. They, they talked a lot about, they talked a lot about religion a lot in the QA or Q and A, maybe not a lot, but you know, the, the, the interviewer asked, Asked him, you know, what his role is exactly with uh, religion because it plays such a big part in a lot of his movies, yeah. especially in Pi. And he's like, I just think, you know, he because he made uh, Noah, yeah. And he's he's like, you know, I just think they're great stories. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very religious at all. <laughs> and was this the story behind Noah? I mean, his personal story behind Noah was like, it was a. a I want to say it was a grade school essay or a challenge that his teacher said, like, come up with a story based on the Bible or something like that. Or, and so no, it was like a story that he came up when he was in either grade school or high school. And it was something no, I didn't that, he, know that I think, yeah, I remember, I can't remember exactly what, what it was, but it was something like he, he did when he wrote or he wrote it, at least the, the, the idea of it. Right. Uh, uh, that he, cause it's really kind of a, it's part of the Bible, but it's also a fictional tale of, a side story of Noah's journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, it was something that he came up during when he was still in school that he kept in, you know, he kept away and he knew he was going to make a movie out of it. And eventually when Noah came out, I mean, when he was working on Noah, he brought that out. Cause he's, I guess he's always been fascinated by religion and, and these, these type of things, but not in the way where, you know, other kind of, People are fascinated by religion. He wants to challenge religion in a lot of ways. But I, I think that's what's so fascinating about him as a director, because we also, you know, you know, like I said earlier in other previous episodes that I was a big fan of the of the whale, even though a lot of people hate the whale. People say it's a lot of different things. Oh, and also when I when I was in, in the in the theater, um, waiting for the, the QA, waiting for Pi to begin, I, you know, there was a lot of people in you know, a lot of LA people in, in the, in the theater, obviously. Right. And I was hearing people talk about their opinions of the whale. Oh, good. What and, you, you heard? And, and you know, these, these are, you know, this is a, this is a, you know, anniversary screening of pie in, in 8k. <laughs> and what? And in 8k. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so, so there's, there's a lot of Aronofsky fans in the theaters and it's the LA crowd. And you hear people, talking about the whale and none of them 
understood the movie. Oh, so because <laughs> everyone... did they like the movie? They yeah. they all say they appreciated it uh-huh. for the performances and the technical aspect, but they just said the movie is just complete fiction and that it's just like no one really lives like this. Oh, oh wow, that's interesting. <laughs> that's because uh, uh, like when because we, we uh, I think we last episode we talked about the the whale and how much we love it and how much like it felt genuine to us. Uh, uh, because- well, most people are Tonys, right? Was that Tony? <laughs> what was the pizza delivery guy's name? Dan or Danny, or Dan, Dan or really? Dan, Dan. But I mean, I think, I think, I think, uh, you know, we were saying about how critics were criticizing it, and and it, the, I think the idea is like a lot of these people don't necessarily understand people who suffer from this this type. Not just as, you know, I think take away the kind of the 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 the, the over, isolation. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the isolation, isolation the, the depression, more, and yeah, I think that's the more important alienation. Thing. Yeah, I think that's the more important part of the movie than say. The overeating. I think the overeating is what people get so fixated on. And mm-hmm. I think it's the isolation that feels more true. And the depression feels more true and definitely feels real. But I think so people, so people are just the so... overeating is just a, a, side, a side effect of it. Or yeah. it, it that, that's kind of this character's... And a lot of people that do suffer from this, it's kind of their kind of... Um, it's their comfort. Right. And, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because I just read an inter- or a review of the whale right after it won, an, you know, won, right after Brendan Fraser won an Oscar. It was in the Guardian, and we're kind of blasting it. And I was like, and people were saying, "Read this article if you don't understand why the whale sucks." And so I was going, "Let me read it." And it's like, it was just kind of bringing up the whole idea that you know, no, all fat people are like this. And sure, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true, right? There's different shades of different people. But this is not, not everyone's uh, Gabriel Iglesias. Right. Yeah. No one's like, there's, there, there's definitely plenty of happy, overweight people, right? There's de- that's, def- that's not the whole point of this movie. And I think what uh, I, I love about The Whale was it touched on a certain uh, 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 feeling of isolationist, like you were saying, depression, that is very real. And it's very much a kind of prevalent issue that's going on today. Particularly with men, I think, and I think that even though, like, say, Brendan Fraser's character is is you know someone um, overweight, and he you know his 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 depression comes from the the death of his uh, his lover. I think it's it's such it's such a a, a relatable uh, story for people who kind of deal with that those issues, and I think I, I'm so shocked that people are just kind of just fixated on the kind of the overweight stuff. And how that, uh, it, 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 I don't know, it feels like a, just a kind of reductive idea of what the movie is. Just like, oh, it's just about a fat guy, or it's about a guy in a fat suit, right? And I, I think that's a reductive idea of how to analyze a film like that. And um, I don't know. You know, it, you know, if you don't like the film, don't like the film. I, I don't care. I, I just, you know, like I said, it was one of my favorite movies of last year. Uh, Same here. Um, you watching Pi for the first time, what was it like d- d- watching it in that screening, watching it in 8K? <laughs> well, uh, I, I had seen part of the film before, so I will say it, it did look nice in, in seeing it in 8K, but I don't know how much more better it would have been than seeing the 4K transfer right. on, you know, on my TV. <laughs> like, I, like I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure if Criterion were to do a 4K Blu-ray of it, and and who knows? They probably are. As this, as they get, maybe since A twenty four released it, they'll they'll A twenty four will do like a special Blu ray. They sell Blu rays on their website. 
It's, it's they might do something special for it. Yeah, could be, could be. It, it's it's um, funny. It's it's funny because the the movie itself looks, and I mean I mean this in a good way. It looks crappy. <laughs> it was shot on black and it's white. A good, it, it's a good transfer though. They did a good job. They cleaned it up. I mean, it still looks crappy. It looks yeah. authentic, but, <laughs> yeah. there, but there's a, there's a shine to it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it, it looks um, it, like when I see a lot of like, uh, like kind of classic black and white movies and stuff like transferred onto 4k mm-hmm. or like get these really cool, like a uh, nice, like uh 1080 trans uh, remasters. Right. I mean, this was very comparable to that. So well, I, I mean, it looked really good. I, I It was intentionally supposed to look this kind of, high contrast. I mean, it was shot on black and white reversal film. This was still mm-hmm. where people shot on film. I think it was probably super 16. It has like a lot of grain, a lot of that film grain. Yeah. And so it's supposed to look like what, you know, like I was saying, much in the vein of like eraser head. And yeah. so it's supposed to have like, like that really dark con- or the high contrast, really grainy uh, look to it. And a lot of it is supposed to hide like the kind of low, you know, lo-fi production value of the film because it's really just a guy in his apartment building for most of the time and like maybe parts of it uh of him walking around new york but uh yeah i mean mostly it's just in the in the the subway i think at the time because i do i I saw pie in theaters in 1998 and uh, i remember because because it was such a big buzzy film i I believe it premiered sundance or it, it, it i don't know where it just had a at the time, it had this buzz around it, and then Darinovsky was going to be this new new filmmaker that everyone should watch. So I remember seeking it out. Had to go to let's say I want to say it was Costa Mesa or Santa Ana. It was a, like some you know like a small theater uh, to watch it, and um, had a great time watching it. I was really shocked. I was very impressed by by who Darinovsky was going to you know turn out to be have been a fan since and you know he's i think is someone who considers myself you know i consider myself a gen x or so i i believe arnarski is probably our you know my, one of my favorite kind of filmmakers of that generation uh certainly someone who came out in that sundance 90s uh movement and so yeah i was over very impressed by pie um what was the reactions of the of the audience at, at at the screening? Well, you could tell that there was probably a lot of people like like me that you know had never seen the 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 full the film before, or at least the completed film before. It it was good, but it was you could tell that it, maybe it wasn't the most engaging movie for for the audience. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but I mean, people weren't like playing with their phones and stuff. It's just like you know, there were there were there were moments where like that were clearly supposed to be funny and stuff that you know didn't get laughs. And um, it was a little dated. <laughs> you think so? You think so? Well, it does. Yeah, it definitely I mean, feels like a '90s film. It feels like a student film. It feels like a low, like yeah. a low-fi film. It's really. But I think. But I think the, what, what's important about the movie is really Aronofsky as a, a director really shines through, mm-hmm. and I think you know um, the uh, 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 Matthew uh, Liboutique really as a cinematographer really comes through, and yeah. I think you know Clint Mansell scores you know. Fantastic! You still hear it there in his in, his, in the first movie. Then you it, it was I, I think it was their first films or first film too. I think those two two uh, yeah. cinematographer and, and Clint Mansell's uh, score was like probably the first time he yeah, did a the, score. And those guys are those those three are, are are a great team, and I mean that's really I think what makes that movie special. I mean the the this it's a good premise, but I th- I almost think it would make like a better short film than it would make a feature length mm-hmm. film. 
But but I mean, for what it is, it's it's good. It's it's a it's a it's a great first feature, especially for how they made it. I mean, they basically guerrilla film made the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's impressive. Did they talk about like the 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 shot of him like point like the point of view shot where there was a rig on his shoulders and the cameras facing him, and while he walking through New York, you know what I'm talking about in the in the in the in the film, the main actor. Yeah. Yeah. So they have to put a, a whole kind of tech gear on him. Yeah. And so it it made had that kind of weird effect of him being paranoid. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That I think that the technique has been used. That was the first movie ever. That was the first movie. I, ever I think one of the first movies that ever did that. I mean, I, I remember afterwards. That's like iconic. Yeah, it's yeah, like that's a, like a that's music a videos thing. have stole that kind of technique in other you know since then. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's like the mo- that's the the kind of go thing to you to do like in a movie when a character is like drunk or, yeah, or high yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like sh- I remember Stock Lock and Two Smoking Barrels did a similar shot. I think that came afterwards. I mean, it was something. I don't know. Maybe did they talk about that at all? Or I I, th- I think they did. They I mean they talked about uh, certain techniques. Every every everything. I mean they they talked even about you know the uh, like a, fi- a film. Um, Film stock and all that stuff. Yeah, I I, rec- I recorded a, a, a lot of it. Oh, I, I didn't send it to you guys, huh? Well, I'll I remember send it to you later. I, uh, spe- specifically, I remember when, when watching the movie. I remember Clint Mansell's score, and because he was one of the first ones to incorporate kind of that drum beat house music. Or I don't know uh, techno music. Well, you know? that's they said that a lot of that was because the the producer of the film. I, I forgot his name again, but uh, he was there. Uh, he he used to be a, a a raver during that time, so oh, it was his idea too fuck. to put that in there. And then they were joking that they uh, Darren Aronofsky was joking. This is this is what happens when you rave through your whole life. <laughs> it, it's funny because that's one of the great appeals of the movie. Because when I heard that score, and it was like the very first you know scene in the movie where you know Clint Mansell's like you know let me play a little bit of it because it's pretty iconic and it really kind of shows you that he'll eventually do the same thing in other movies but um you hear a lot of that kind of scoring uh requiem for a dream it's similar 1245 restate my assumptions something you you said that you wanted to tell uh Darinovsky, but you didn't get a chance to well you, what did you want to tell him oh i don't want to talk about that <laughs> no go ahead tell him tell us uh okay well i want i wanted to say that i uh hit you know requiem for a dream uh kind of me, uh means a lot to me because mm-hmm. you know when when that movie came out you know i saw it when i was you know pretty young i think i must have been either like i think it was like 13 years old but um you know, not, you know, around that time, you know, I was, you know, kind of doing a lot of stuff that, you know, high school kids do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I always kind of stayed away from, you know, certain, certain drugs. And uh, I, I do have, you know, friends from back then that, you know, have, have OD'd and, you know, died because of, um you know, the drugs taken in that film. And I just have to say that, you know, he, he kind of kept, he kind of kept me away from a lot of those things. And, that, um, 
you know, it was, it was a powerful movie and it, it means a lot to me. And also that, that movie kind of opened my eyes to uh, filmmaking and what kind of uh, directing and cinematography and kind of all that kind of does. And it, it kind of made me into the film fan, film fan I am today. So, I mean, it's a really, you know, powerful and meaningful film to me. Yeah, I think you see a little bit of those kernels and in Pi, you know, where it, it, it somehow, you know, he was testing the waters in Pi that eventually, I mean, I think either, although Pi got a lot of notice in like some festivals, but it really was Requiem for a Dream where it made, that made him his, his name or made his career really, I mean, it was just a better film. I mean, it's a film, you know, this, this is kind of like a, a test run or, you know, a student film or whatever that was very popular. It was also the nineties where people were more acceptable of, of those kind of, you know, tryouts or these, these kind of low budget experiments. People were just more acceptable for about watching that stuff in theaters. I mean, I actually drove to the movie theaters to watch this movie, but I think, I think also back then in the nineties, you had room to grow. And I, I think that's the, that's probably the problem nowadays. Like, Filmmakers don't, there's no room for that. There's, they're, they're not given years to grow and become better filmmakers. You have to have like a comic book movie on your belt right away, or you have to do it. Or if you do, if you don't do a comic book movie, you have to have like a small movie, then do the comic book movie. There's no in between. Remember, uh, Aronofsky almost did Wolverine. That would have been weird. And Batman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Batman yeah. at one point, too. Yeah. I mean, he came, he came out at probably the right time because if he came out, just a decade later, he probably probably wouldn't have the same career. He would have just been a totally different filmmaker. He he talked to, he he talked a little bit about the uh, the whale over there. He said, you know, um, uh, even even though the movie's not didn't quite get the reception that he he wanted, he said, you know, he talked about uh, he, uh, something. Uh, he talked about you know the, the important thing about it is that he, he he's been hearing a lot how. Uh, People with uh, obesity have been kind of speaking out, and mm -hmm. he's been hearing that a lot of people that it's been helping people, and then that to him that's kind of the that was kind of the most important thing. Yeah, I think so. so. You, you could tell that he he for him you you could tell he 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 his movies he wants to make movies that kind of impact people. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. I think even with something like the Fountain, uh, which is much more of a Again, another kind of, uh, or the wrestler too, but uh, the fountain was a little bit more of that mythical or mystical, uh, a little bit of the religious stuff too. Uh, but it, yeah, he, there is something about him trying to understand uh, the personal journey and in, in, in not just self discovery, but self uh, improvement. Maybe it's you know he's borderline new age, <laughs> new agey, but not in a <laughs> cringy way you know <laughs> well some would argue with the whale <laughs> well i know well yeah so you you went to uh saw pie it's probably mostly did they say if it's gonna come out in uh, blu-ray or 4k or? no but I, I i think it will i mean if they already did this transfer i mean yeah. it, it would make sense and i i think they said that 824 kind of picked it up or whatever i'm not i'm, I'm uh, they did the they did the whole imax thing so i would I, and i think they're a24 might be selling merch for it. I'm not sure, but so I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they do like a, a Blu-ray release of it. I know on their website, they do a lot of exclusive 4k Blu-rays of movies that you can only get on their site. So I wouldn't be surprised if they do something like that for this, because I don't know if this is something that would need a wide release and need to be sold in Best Buy and stuff like that. Maybe, 
maybe just, you know, get it from a specialty site. It seems, seems more appropriate for a movie like Pi. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And I guess in the perfect world, it'd be like Criterion may have, might pick it up or something like that. that. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. Especially if he owns the rights, he could just lease it to Criterion for a special collector edition or something like that. Um, let's get into headlines because I think there's a lot of bit of uh, news that came out recently, and we'll, and we'll talk about Boston's uh, Strangler and Cocaine Bear at the at the end of this episode. But let's get into headlines because let's let's uh, let's talk about kind of the big thing that came out today. Uh, a Victoria Alonso, who was a, who is a studio executive who's probably been there from the very beginning or early days of Marvel. And so the news came out that she has exited the studio. She has left the studio. Uh, there's unclear what the reasons why, but she has parted her ways with Marvel. Um, and uh, so what was, what's your thoughts on, on uh, Victoria Alonso? Uh, I mean, this is great news. I mean, this is something that should have happened uh, a long time ago, but unfortunately... I think it's just happening way too late. Uh, and we talked about this in rec- a little bit recently in the latest box office video, but I, re- I really feel that like kind of over, over, over the last decade or so, you know, comic book movies have obviously been booming. Mm-hmm. It's been the go-to movies. It's been the business, the movie business have been comic book movies. You can even make the argument. And um, the, the dominant ones were, obviously marvel movies mm-hmm. those were what that's what people prioritized they basically became serialized series so that's what people went to first and if the marvel movies are good people would give the dc movies a chance as well but the marvel movies have been really 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 bad lately because of victoria alonso and maybe not just her you can't just put all the blame on her but she's a big part of the reason and oh, really? um, you think it's a big part of, her, of the reason why yes yeah i think so and um and I think, you know, with everything that w- happened with Marvel with this last phase and then, you know, just completely shitting the pet bed and doing this whole Disney Plus thing, which was a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. It, it, it hurt Marvel and that obviously hurt DC. And, that ob- and since DC is also suffering, that, that just hurts every other, all these other kind of other comic book movies that aren't Marvel or DC. And it's all just, it's all just dying. It's all, it's all completely falling apart. And it's at a point where even if the movies are good, the audience is going to get smaller. It's going to diminish more and more. And I think if comic book movies are really going to be successful, they're going to have to drastically be something so far removed from what's, you know, usually seen as a comic book movie it'd have to be something like joker you know what i mean or mm. like the batman it has to be something so completely removed from what a comic book movie is to be successful now which is maybe fine i mean that's kind of what i wanted it's just that um i've also kind of always wanted to see a, an interconnected dc universe kind of like we got in animation because i love those characters and i think there's potential in doing it but i think victoria alonso is too late she killed the genre. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like I think you're, I think you're right. I think Victoria Alonso alone is not the problem, right? I think, I think maybe we put too much emphasis on who. who I mean, I don't know. To be honest, but she's I, become I, the face of it. She becomes, yeah. Unfortunately, she has become the face as they kind of. Beca- beca- well, a they, lot of it is this Rick and Morty writers also. Yeah. Oh, definitely, and I, 
And a lot of it's Disney Plus. A lot of it's by Bob Iger, I would say. Yes. Personally. I'd say, hey, you know what? This is this is a podcast, right? We could say this. Fuck Bob Iger. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't understand the love for Bob Iger. Some people have called them Papa Iger, which is just <laughs> so disgusting. I don't think, I think the, the, the reason why he's kind of venerated or is deemed a genius is because he's, he bought all his competition and that's not genius. That's just, just, you know, a corporate Weird. mind, just a corporate, you know, it's a corporate raider, you know, he just buys his competition. That, that doesn't necessarily make him, you know, high, uh, give him a high IQ or something. Uh, Rich, did you want to see everyone replace in the Marvel <laughs> executive staff, you know, just replace everyone, just this clean house, just clean, get everyone out there, put new blood in and maybe change the, the, the outlook. Like what they're doing with DC? <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah. But, oh, but keep the actors or or, or uh, just, remove them too. Just remove all the executives, all the people who are okay. greenlighting some of these, uh, you know, projects or whatever. But so it's like it's like the opposite of DC. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Rich, let's get, let's get your thoughts. Well, I think uh, uh, Victoria Alonso, who and uh, who was the other guy that was uh, appointed with her at the same time? Yeah, I Louis can't something, right? Okay, Desposito, whatever. Yeah, yeah, something. Um, okay, I think they're both to blame. So I yeah. think Victoria Alonso was just the first one, mm-hmm. but well, you think, was, you think uh, Luis uh, Desposito, whatever his name is, is is he the next one they're going to leave? Yeah, or? both of them were um, uh, were given uh, you know um, promote promotions at the same time, right? And Kevin Feige was about, uh, was basically wanted to you know basically wanted to give him the reins, and I think that's what he 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 did basically. Mm-hmm. So all these projects, especially Quantum Mania and uh, uh, Thor: Love Thunder, maybe even that film, She-Hulk. Uh, but She Hulk definitely. Mm-hmm. All these projects are under their belt, and all those projects are being shit shit on and shit on and shit <laughs> on. And um, so um, they have to be. Someone's got to be in a blame. And and as as a producer's job, it's to oversee projects, and that's exactly what they didn't do. Mm-hmm. They did not oversee any of these writings. Right. They did not. They didn't. All they did was you know check the, the check the books basically mm-hmm. uh, as far as I could tell. Uh, to keep that's you what know, it feels the, like. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not a that's not a job oh, as a producer. The, I mean, you got the comic books. You mean? <laughs> well, the storylines in the comic books. <laughs> They don't know they don't know comic books okay. whatsoever. That's for damn sure too. Okay. So they want they want to focus on this new Marvel stuff. Yeah, and that's what fans don't want. Fans of Marvel are 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 traditional want, Marvel Marvel yeah. characters. And also, the, all these new Marvel fans they want the OG Marvel fans, exactly. the OG characters that they grew up with. They, they want, want the, you know, the X Men. They want the Fantastic Four. They want everything that they know of. Uh, and Stop with these new characters that no one cares about. No one cares about. So, uh, and, um, no one cares about Namor. Namor's offensive. <laughs> Namor was a good, uh, good character to work with, but they they totally changed it up and and, and you know, you know, it, 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 it just written wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, here's my thoughts. Really, I I, I think uh, I, I think she might be a little bit of a scapegoat at this point. I, I, I don't. don't think I, so. I I think because look, it, put Victoria Alonso. Put anyone who else. You know, put the antithesis of, of Victoria Alonso. Like put someone who is complete opposite, and I think that person will at, fail just as equally as what she did. And I think, and I and I say that because I think the, the 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 structure of Marvel Studios at this point is not about giving you quality films, but giving you quantity films as much yes. films as possible. But, 
and I and then and I think she happens, you know, because she's a a, a Latina. She she's a very you know she's a gay woman. So they were able to lean on that. She's come that. almost I would say almost you know maybe a token a little bit. I mean she could she she definitely was playing that up for her benefit you know yeah i'm a latina i'm a gay woman and yeah. you know these are my qualities and so she she allowed herself to be almost a token for uh, or a face for uh, marvel for for these type of kind of identity uh you know projects but uh but that doesn't excuse you of like bad writing and bad you know films and bad tv shows you know uh so it's it's unfortunate that she puts herself in that position because I think she she actually set herself to be the scapegoat for a lot of things. Um, with that being but said, I, I think I, I would I would kind of agree with you, but they were been they were behind Kevin Feige for since two thousand six, right? And that's no excuse. I, they, I, they've been there well, since the I, damn I, almost I, the damn beginning, right? Right. So I, they should have known they should have known their jobs by then. But I think the problem is in a corporate world like Marvel is in a corporate world, people. Uh, fail up, and, and that's mm. just the 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 matter. That's just the how corporate situations happens. People who fail up, people who well, not it's they, not a meritocracy. There's but not also, pe- but also, but also, they also kind of didn't fail because they were always yeah, that's uh, true. Writing uh, Kevin Feige's uh, coattails, right? Right, yeah. right, right. They were always right behind him, and for every success that he had, and also, you know, to be fair. We don't even know like what Kevin Feige really contributes to these things. Like yeah. the only the only like reason- Richard Richard had Richard had this theory right that I thought was kind of interesting. That he thought that he has this what or maybe it's true, but he has this whole theory that it was all Josh Whedon from the very right? beginning. Yeah, yeah. Josh um, Whedon and, was and, set may, up. and maybe it was maybe it was maybe it was all Josh Whedon. <laughs> yeah, and I don't since- like and I don't like Josh Whedon, but I mean. You know, I don't. I don't really like Kevin Feige either. <laughs> well, I, I I had suggested that Joss Whedon, ever since the uh, the first Avengers, he was hired to finish uh, to do the first Avengers and the second Avengers. That he he set up the um the uh, the the skeleton saga the the the, the skeleton of uh, everything every every feature film up to led, led up to the to the Infinity Saga, and once they finished with that skeleton, everything went shit. You know, straight down the hill. That's that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So they need they need some kind of. It was strange to go from the Infinity Saga to Multiverse Saga. It's like what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, this makes yeah. No I sense. think the, the Multiverse is probably the worst. I mean, I think take away Victoria Alonso, I think Multiverse was the downfall of Marvel because it's just a, a completely complex idea mm-hmm. that feels Wait, so Multiverse yeah. plus New Avengers. Right. Yeah, right. Right. Like well, the, Young the, Avengers, I should say. Right, young the Avengers. Young Avengers idea, because now they're replacing all the old characters with these young characters, mostly. And, and all the fans that grew up with these characters, you know, that have been watching these movies for the past 10 years, no one wants that. Right. You know what I mean? Right, they right, don't right. want... To, we, we understand that Tony Stark and, you know, Chris Evans are gone or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're still Hulk, they're still Thor, they're mm-hmm. still, you know, all these characters. People don't want all these, like, young ones, all these, like, you know... Uh, Re Re Williams people. It's too soon, man. Don't give no, us that. It's well, it's a thing. I mean, uh, uh, Marvel shot themselves in the foot as far as pricing goes. All they made superstars out of those out of those actors. Like uh, of course, of course, you know Robert Downey Jr. So they so needed they're, more they're, Zachary Levi. So for them, in order to continue, would have cost them cost cost them literally an an arm and a leg mm-hmm. to to continue on with these movies, but. 
They, yeah, you you got you got right. They saw they gotta, saw the 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 financial up up uh you know the upswing the, the battle. No, the, it was new, a, it was to a, get new actors involved. Yeah, it's and a new characters. It, it was, yeah. yeah, it's much more of a, a pro to get on a financial level. Much more a pro to get these young actors f- for very low money. Get them mm-hmm. signed for five picture deals. At and least. talented actors, man. Yeah. I mean, like Haley Steinfeld, Florence Pugh. I mean, these are very talented actors, but I don't like how they're being used. <laughs> yeah, it, the only thing, the only problem with the, with them signing on for these f- projects is that their characters kind of just feel like uh, watered down Horrible. versions of of the the characters they're replacing. You know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so it doesn't necessarily feel they ne- they don't necessarily feel unique, and they never they, they don't feel three dimensional. They always feel like two dimensional or a carbon copy of, of what, uh, whatever character they're replacing. And exactly. I, I think, but I think overall, I mean, if you look at a kind of a, you know, if you step back and look at the bigger picture, I think this is just a kind of a typical kind of uh, progression for a, for movie studios. They have these kind of upswings and then now we're seeing this downswing for Marvel. And I think that's going to happen with, and, and it has happened with every kind of major, major studio movie studio. These, you know, they are great kind of uh, years and financially, and they make great movies. And then it tails off. It tails off when they hit, you know, once they hit that kind of top of the mountain level of success, it, it, the, the, the maintaining that is the, the roughest thing to do. You know, that's, the, that's where you kind of need to double down on talent and creativity. And that's what Marvel didn't do. They just doubled down on kind of surface level uh, stuff like, we're going to bring you new characters. We're going to bring you uh, diversity. We're going to bring you all these other things, these kind of catchphrases, fa- which really mean, it's meaningless when, when it's not done right. You know, it's, it's, right. when it's not done right, then it's like, it does, those are just blanket, you know, those are, those are statements that have no weight. And I think that's what happened with Marvel. And I think that's, I think we have hit a certain uh, point in, in, in fandom, or at least in movie, uh, era of, of people are just getting tired of comic book movies. And we just recently saw the, the disappointment uh, box office uh, numbers for Shazam too. And, you know, I think that's just another sign that people are kind of getting tired of this stuff. It's just oversaturation of the market of superheroes. And, you know, again, if you look at history, at one point musicals were big hits for, for Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Those fizzled out. Fizzled yeah, out to the uh, point where they no one makes musicals no more. Same thing happened with westerns. Same thing happened with cop uh, police, action police cop guns. films. Yeah. You know, so this is just kind of a natural progression of everything that uh, every genre that happens. You know, every genre that becomes successful. And so, it, 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 you know, as much as I think we could blame on a particular person, I think it's just this is just natural progression of anything. You know, uh, just too, just, much, yeah, of, too it, much of a good thing. But it could have still stuck around a bit longer. I think <laughs> I really think Victoria Alonso really kind of just almost like took away at least ten years out of it. Mm-hmm. Would you would you like to see like a clean slate that get rid of all the executives and bring new people, bring new blood? Uh, at this point, I'm I, it's kind of like Star Wars. I'm just completely over Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of just completely over everything Disney at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Um, like I'll still watch a couple projects here and there, like if they look good. But I'm just like I'm just. It all everything Disney to me just kind of feels the same, despite it being Star Wars, Marvel, or even just some something else completely different. It all just feels the same to me. Yeah, you, like everybody else, is probably only waiting for Guardians of the Galaxy three. That's it. 
Which I'm not one? even excited for that. Yeah. I'm going to watch it, but I'm not even excited for it. But, and then we, um, we should say, it's not just a Marvel thing. It's It seems like Disney itself, this, the whole studio has a problem with just all this stuff. I mean, Pixar has really damaged their brand too with their kind of lackluster, lackluster films that came out uh, the last couple of years. Uh, you know, animation department's been horrible. I mean, the last couple of movies just been failures. And I don't know, you know, it just really seems like Disney itself needs a, a reshape and, and a reorganization in the, in the in the company yeah it looks like they're just relying on their parks now yeah oh definitely <laughs> and so if victoria alonso did not i mean i'm assuming she didn't get fired and and she left it on her own reasons and i think she, she was very smart to do that because i think she saw the writing on the wall and say i'm out of here because they're going to start blaming me <laughs> and now and now she could leave with at least some sense of like uh, I got, you know, I got a couple of projects off. I of got my- Quantum Mania, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like whatever. She could like at least, you know, have a, a reputation before it completely goes to shit, uh, which which I think maybe maybe that's what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know. It depends. I, I don't know what brought this up. I, it was a shocker that did, that she left. And I thought she was really on the road of taking over or she, I mean, it really seems like she was gearing or they were prepping her to take over or or at least part of the, you know, be part of the head uh, heads of, of Marvel or whatever. I don't know how they would would have done it, but um, well, we'll see who else is gonna. We'll see what happens uh, and uh, afterwards. But it, it's uh, it was it was strange. We'll see, let's, we'll see who else gets fired. Uh, yeah, if, if it was a firing, <laughs> um, let's get into some other big news. Now, this is exciting news. This is uh, a, a bit of news about Quentin Tarantino's final film. Mm. which is about, which is uh, attentively titled The Movie Critic, which is going to be set in the 70s and is supposedly going to be set around a, a female movie critic, somewhat uh, inspired by Pauline Kael, the famous film critic. Uh, Rich, you kind of brought this up to our attention. What, what was your feelings about this, about Quentin Tarantino's possible final film? I kind of do and don't want it <laughs> as, as his final film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it seems like it, it could be the closest thing that he's ever done to a sequel. Cause it, it seems like they could have a sequel uh, to, uh, once upon, once upon a time, time Hollywood. in Hollywood. Yeah. It seems like that. They, they well, he did have, kill uh, Bill. Leo. I mean, he did kill huh? Bill. Kill Bill was, there's two people, two sequels. Oh, but that, that, that he that, could, that, yeah, he not, considers, he considers that's one movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I know, um, uh, Michael Keaton appeared in, um, Jackie Brown and also in the Oh yeah, he brings in other yeah, yeah, he mentions but, other characters and he has this kind of universe, yeah. But but also I am just saying that uh um that I mean Leo and Brad could even uh, easily pop up uh, as their same characters mm-hmm. in this film. Yeah, I think, yeah. Cuz yeah. it seems like that this is Quentino's uh 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 chance to do more to build more sets of 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 uh, some of his favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and they yeah. could go back in time and right. and uh, vis- vi- uh, have her ca- this character visit sets of uh, or or whatever um, you know uh, of actors during their the, the the you know some of the, the huge hits of the mo- uh, at the seventies and eighties. Well, see, not the eighties, right? So a Tarantino, sixties oh, and seventies, probably you're right. Yeah, sixties and Tarantino has been a big fan of sixties and seventy films, and he has also been a, a vocal critic of the eighties films. He he calls eighties like the worst decade for movies ever. He compares it to like I think nineteen fifties or something like that. 
as like some of the worst movies to come out of all time, which I don't like because I grew up on the 80s of films. So I don't dis- mm-hmm. I don't agree with him on that, but he can have his own opinion about that. So he really kind of is, he loves these movies from the 70s. And he loves that time in, in, uh, in L.A. So mm-hmm. may, to me, it makes perfect sense. And it really seems like, I mean, it really might, it might be like a, just a kind of a typical drama or, uh, you know, following this kind of uh, movie critic who somewhat inspired by Pauline Kael. Uh, and Pauline Kael is someone he, he uh, but, loves. At the, but at the same time, at the same time, isn't that what we all thought about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I thought that no, was. No, I thought it was going to be more of a murder thing. The uh, Manson murders? Yeah. yeah. I thought that was going to be a, a much more the focus. And it ended up being something just like so completely different. Exactly. I just, I can't imagine this movie being. Only a, a, a bio, kind of a loose biopic. Yeah. I, I feel like there has to be a, a bit more to it. Um, I like, look, she's still, she's still going to be the, the, the main character and like the focus of it. Mm-hmm. But I almost wonder if there's going to be, uh, I mean, there clearly has to be an ensemble. Mm. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely going to be different characters. Um, maybe and cameos. Based, yeah, maybe even real life people, figures in Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's interesting. I mean, he, he the last projects he's been doing. He's you know he did a a book sequel to Once Upon a Time in in Hollywood. He also did a kind of like semi uh, review movie review book where he you know kind of looked back to the movies of the seventies. So this seems like it was part of him. You know, he was thinking about this time and. Maybe he was thinking about uh, Pauline Kael at the time. So I don't know. It, 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 I, you know, if this is going to be his final movie, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm all for it. I think he is. I think he should stop doing <laughs> movies. Well, I, I kind of was hoping that there actually would be a, a Kill Bill 3 come back to fruition. Um, but I don't know if uh, if Uma Thurman is still, I mean. I'm sure they're, they're fine. I, I'm sure they fine, amend yeah. their relationship. But well, I, that's the unfortunate thing, man, because, like, since he only has one movie left, like, I really want to Kill Bill 3, mm. but I don't know if I would want Kill Bill 3 to be his final movie, because mm. that, that also probably has the most, the biggest chance of anything to be, like, his most disappointing movie since um, Death Proof. Yeah. And I like Death Proof a lot, but I wouldn't want Death Proof to be his final movie. I don't, think, Bill, I don't think he even considers that one of his films. <laughs> Probably not, but I, but I wouldn't. But regardless, I wouldn't want Death Proof, something like Death Proof, to be his final film. And Kill Bill Three could potentially be even slightly more disappointing than that. Not that Death Proof is a bad movie; it's it's still good. But you know, um, so I don't I don't know if I would want Kill Bill Three to be his final. It's just there, that that it, too much of a chance of disappointment in that movie. But I don't know if I want this to be his final movie either. But it, I, I I like the idea of it. Yeah. And it, even and if it is if it is like a straight up drama, well, I kind of like the idea of, of Quentin Tarantino doing that also, because like, I mean, Jackie Brown's one of his most unique films, and this would probably be like the closest thing to to that to that It'll probably be a mixture of like Jackie Brown and um, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's what that's why I say I don't know if he needed to set this in the seventies. I think he. It would have been really cool if he would have said it in the 90s because, you know, that was his time where he made his, you know, first mark in film. And I think he also, if he doesn't, you know, we all kind of know that he's the kind of an expert of 70s films and all the kind of inner, 
inner storylines or stories, details of Hollywood at that time. But he also knows very much, you know, on a personal level, very much knows the story, all the stories of, of what happened in the 90s. And I think it would have been interesting for his final film to, like, do a expose of the film studios or the film community of the 90s and get, a, like, an insight of him, what he had to go through or what he saw. Uh, maybe he didn't want to do that. Maybe he didn't want to implicate kind of people. I mean, I guess people would want him to talk about Harvey Weinstein or something or his relationship <laughs> with Harvey Weinstein. So maybe he just yeah, wanted to, I didn't even think about that. Maybe he just wanted to just keep the stuff in the 70s. But I think that would have been interesting if he, you know. Uh, now, as Kate, far as, as casting goes, do you think uh, it's going to be Kate Blanchett or or even uh, uh, Meryl Streep? Or do you think Quentin will pull another basket out of, you know, rabbit out of his hat and cast like Zoe Bell or something? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, Pauline Kael, at, in, the, in the 70s, she was much older. I would say she was, like, here in her 50s, maybe? Uh, or maybe in the, her late 40s or something. So I, would th- I, was, I was thinking uh, Tilda Swinton would have been a good, uh, mm. good cast. I mean, she, I don't think she ever worked with Tarantino. Neither no. Meryl Streep or, or, or <laughs> Well, I mean, if she, if she was able to get Meryl Streep, that would be interesting. But I think she might be a little too old. I mean, I don't know. I did, it really. I mean, obviously, it's a fictional character, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. You know. Yeah, it could have been anybody. I like the fact that he is focusing on an older woman. I think that's that's. I think that's what's that was so great about Jackie Brown, and he was able to you know really make this homage for for Pam Greer, and you know, mm-hmm. and she was so perfect for that for the movie. I like Jackie Brown a lot. Oh yeah, I think it's still one of his best. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it'd be you know it'd be interesting who who he picks, definitely. I think it's gonna probably be an actress he, he never worked with before though. Oh, maybe yeah. You guys are saying that, right? Yeah, I think I think it's probably gonna be someone he's never worked with. Um, well, let's get to our next headline, um, which is uh, Tom Cruise. We gotta talk about the Cruise man. Mm-hmm. So apparently, he saw the Flash film. I, I love this story. The, you know what makes this a headline is that. Tom Cruise saw the Flash and he loved it. <laughs> That's well, right. he asked. He asked the head of WB. What's his name? Um, Za, uh, Zasloff or yeah, um, to David to, Zasloff to, for for a, for a private screening and the the director um, uh, sent him. Actually, sent someone over to his house. Oh, really? And, yeah, and uh, and they watched it and then or whatever, and then he took the the film back and. Um, Tom Cruise gave his response, which was that, what, what did he say? He loved the movie and that he wanted to speak to Andy Muschietti to tell him that this is exactly what, uh, what, what the type of movie the world needs right now. Really? Like oh, that. shit. That's yeah. high praise, dude. And yeah, then, and then he, like, did he drop off a couple of pamphlets for uh, Scientology? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the bigger question, right? He's like, here is a new guy I could like get into Scientology, right? Well, no, here's a He's new like, guy. Oh, I could get Ezra Miller to Scientology. <laughs> here's a new guy I could get for Mission Impossible 10 or whatever. Um, it's, uh, I, I, I think. Uh, well, he seems like just, he wants to work with him. You, you know, he's a guy who kind of, lo- you know, he doesn't like to pick young filmmakers anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he likes to pick established filmmakers to work with. And, mm-hmm. it, it seem, you know, if he likes this movie that much, it seems like he's gearing up maybe a possible project with, with the director. Uh, M- M- Musetti, Muschetti, 
uh, who is, is you know, I, I think at this point, if if the if the the rumors are true, the and the Flash is this big success, I think he'll be the one of the bigger filmmakers of of of, of recent times. I don't think it's it's Tom Cruise saying I want to be in a DC film. I think it's definitely. Tom Cruise, I want Andy Mache to direct something for me. <laughs> but that's, some that's people, definitely. but some people online are speculating that this all kind of happened because Zaslav was trying to recruit um, Tom Cruise to be in the DC movie. Sure, mm-hmm. sure, but uh, you think he was though? No, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, it's, even it's better for him. It's, it's better for him to just to get a quote from him mm-hmm. how the movie was. It's yeah. I think it works for both camps, right? I mean, they get a good quote from Tom Cruise, and Tom Cruise gets to really get a first encounter with um, uh, the director, mm-hmm. and so he's building relationships. This is how he works. This is why he kind of rules Hollywood now because he knows how to kind of works within the system and stuff like that, and get you know these and, meetings. Yeah, he, and he knows his to- his clock is ticking, and uh, he's only got a couple more years left in him, and you, yeah, he, you he can't, loves to do at least. <laughs> Two films a year. You, 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 I would say you know, he'll like to do three films a year now. Because you, you said you said that he hit the wall. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you could tell. I mean, um, uh, Tom Cruise. I don't know. Well, he is an old. He is an older man now. I mean, like, he is like sixty years old, right? Yeah, yeah and pretty soon he's gonna be. He's, you're gonna be seeing Cry Macho on screen soon, <laughs> and, and uh, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna show. I I kind of think that he's his body's also given it has to be like bad mornings, you know, like he's you know because he's been doing these stunts for so many years. Yeah, uh, he's he's got like what's the percentage of him waking up and there's blood on the pillow? <laughs> Come on, <laughs> Come on, man! I'm telling you, the, he, the way he puts his body into all these kind of you know rigorous. Uh, stunts has got to have an effect, and especially now. I mean, I don't care how many amount of ice baths he takes, his body's got to be hurting. I mean, hey, he avoided COVID. <laughs> He's the only one out there who's been. So he says, uh, who's, who's avoided COVID? So he could do anything right now. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, anyways, let's get, let's get to the next topic. Yeah. Uh, we got to talk about Lance Reddick, you know, a character actor who passed away this, this, uh, like a week ago. Mm-hmm. And he's mostly known for The Wire. He's also known for John Wick. Uh, he died kind of unexpectedly. He was 60 years old. He died of natural causes. He was found in his, uh, I think in his, in his apartment building or his house or whatever. Uh, really shocker, uh, uh, you know, and a guy who was yeah. just a, a, you know, a very talented uh, character actor, had a great voice. He did uh, TV movies. He also voiced on video games. Uh, yeah, just quickly, what, what's your thoughts on uh, Lance Reddick? Just really surprised that he he passed away. Yeah, uh, I, uh, like you, it was a it was a total shock to me that um, his name popped up as being one of the ones that passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sixty years old. It's it's very tragic, uh, and. Not only that, that his career was, um, was probably the best time of, of his career right now. Very prolific. His, very prolific. He was doing number of shows and TV yeah, shows. Yeah, just wrapped. He had John Wick Four coming out, and he just wrapped a ballerina. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure he had plenty of other projects on the way. Uh, it's just you know, it's just sad at this point. It's really, 
and um, and I remember a story that he said uh, to some interview in some interview, saying that um, at one point of um, that he was walking down the street in New York or wherever, and uh, he heard someone uh, screaming, um, "Hey, good actor!" And and then he turned around to look, and it was turned out to be. Uh, it turned out to be Philip Seymour Hoffman, and at that point of his career, he was he he really needed that boost to him, and and look what happened. Uh, I mean, everyone found out mm-hmm. that he is a good actor. Yeah. And he was a great actor at this point. Both of them were. Yeah, it, both it's of them a, are going to be missed. Yeah, it's a um, yeah. It's just when I saw the the headline that he passed away, I'm like, oh shit, what? Mm-hmm. That makes no sense, and. uh Especially how ironic that you know John Wick, the new John Wick movie is coming out this this weekend, um, and he was actually promoting the movie, and so it's just oh, really yeah. it's just shock shocking, um, you know, I, I, it's so strange because he, I knew him from The Wire. I remember him in The Wire, and he, he always played that like this stoic character. You know, he's always comes off as someone who's much more maybe menacing a, a bit a bit, and so mm-hmm. I was shocked to see him in a. Uh, one of those uh, Adult Swim episodes. Um, he did a lot of Adult Swim shows. <laughs> but the, the episode I'm thinking of was a NTSF SDSUV, which was <laughs> yeah. the parody of, uh, of um, I forgot, what was the, you know, the, the, the David Caruso one. Um, oh, CSI? CSI. This is the Paul, the Paul Shear. And he, so he appeared mm-hmm. in this one episode where he plays a villain, but he, he's also the, the owner of a, of a pizza store called or <laughs> senior dicks or something like that. And he was like doing comedy. Like he was just doing like, I, I'm, I was like, Oh my God, this guy's not only killing it at the comedy, but he's willing to do this small parody <laughs> site, you know, or show uh, uh, for Paul Shear. And I'm like, Oh, this guy is much more than just like this uh, stoic character that we saw in, in the wire or, or, you know, the cop shows that we've seen him in. Bosch or whatever, like he he has certain you know there there's flavors and in, t- in his talent you know there's different kind of uh, things that we haven't tapped into you know and I think that's the biggest tragedy you know that that he had a lot more to give and you know I was just hoping that he would able to catch that one part or that one you know movie or that TV show that would have made him like a household name because I think he really you know, had that talent and it's just, it's, 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 a, it's shocking really. No. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, it is a, a total shock. And for me, like the, the thing they always like, um, that I always kind of remember for him for was it, just his voice. He had mm-hmm. such a iconic voice, almost like a, uh, like a, like, like kind of like a Tony Todd voice a little bit. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Super, super, uh, uh, unique and recognizable. And, um, I mean, he did a lot of voice work as well, like on, on a lot of animated shows and uh, video games and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could uh, totally, uh, totally see why. And I, 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 I loved him, you know, everything he appeared in, even if like they were just like bad movies. Because to, to be honest, I, I saw him in a lot of bad movies, but he was always, <laughs> he always, he was always great in them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he was a lot of times it was like one of the, one of the best parts of, you know, these movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the John Wick movies are definitely some of the the best things that he was in, and the the it's it's very kind of ironic that he uh, 
he he passed away just before the release of the the new John Wick film. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I I love him. He he did a part in the guest that that kind hmm. of thriller uh, horror horror tinge action thriller. By yeah, the guys. I, I remember I remember that movie, but I don't remember him in it. He was kind of like the the the, the FBI guy, right? F, yeah, the evil FBI guy, or really small part. He's like a designated hitter. He just comes in and hits a home run, you know, and that's all you need, you know. Like even though it's it's a kind of you know not a memorable part, but he was like kind of the main bad FBI agent who's looking uh, for David uh, or Dan Stevens, that his character. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so and he had like he looked cool in it because he had the vest and he looked he was all dressed in black. He looked really cool in it. He always looks cool. You you know he was really great in that um. Resident Evil remake everyone hated. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That was uh, Netflix, right? The Netflix miniseries, yeah. yeah. Everyone got uh, really pissed because cause he was um because uh, he was playing a white character. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. But he was he was fantastic, and I I loved his take on it. And one of my I think one of the problems that the previous Resident Evil um iterations had was with that character that he was playing, because the character that he was playing in the video games is super cartoony, and mm. every time they adapted him into live action. They went very campy with him, but uh, the uh, Lance Reddick uh, version was not campy at all, and I, I loved his take on it. And unfortunately, you know, in the world we live in, <laughs> you can't have a black actor play a character that was originally white. Yeah, well, uh, you can, you can, but there's going to get a lot of shit. Yeah, only if you're Sam Jackson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to get a lot of shit on Twitter and shit like that. But yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, here's a good thing. Uh, he has finished a lot of projects before he passed away. He was, he's yeah. going to be in White Man Can't Jump. Which is uh, I don't know. Okay, but he's going to be in Shirley, which is a supposedly a, a, a promising biopic about uh, the congresswoman uh, who's about mm. first black uh, congresswoman who ran for president. President, I think that's set in the sixties and seventies. Uh, I'm not sure who he plays in that in that movie. He's also going to uh, return uh, to his John Wick character in Ballerina, which he mm. finished shooting, finished filming, and also in uh, TV. Man, this guy just was constantly working. He's gonna be—he's gonna be Zeus in Percy Jackson, the Olympians, the 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 TV series. The, the which is sad. Oh, that's right? not an animated show. Or that's no, sort of just, oh. yeah, they just started that, I think. Uh, and I don't know. He might have to be replaced for sure on that one. But I think you told me that he finished his part in that in that season in season, right? The first season, ballerina. I don't know. Oh, ballerina. I don't know. Um, Percy Jackson. All I know is that he was. Uh, they definitely have promo shots of him, and and uh, oh, he completed at least a couple uh, episodes. A couple episodes, yeah. Well, well, we'll see. We'll see. He's got an upcoming video game, also. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And y'all, he did a, a Hellboy video game. It says I don't know if that's true, but that'd be cool. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah he was Hell- according to this. He was he's playing Hellboy. And, yeah, and he, and he was also in that long running series Bosch. Yeah, and uh, that and I always hear that. I think we saw the first season and I always wanted to get back to it, but maybe now's our chance to get back to it. All right. So that was, uh, Lance Reddick, rest in peace, rest in power, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, let me quickly talk about SXW cause it's going on right now. I think it's kind of quite finished. Is that the, South by Southwest? Yeah. The, the film festival. I, it, you know, a couple of good reviews that came out, uh, um, Air, the new Ben Affleck film about the air, the making of Air Jordans, got really oh, yeah, strong that reviews. Great. Yeah, so it's it, it got really great reviews at the festival. It premiered there. That's and also surprisingly, um, 
the new Evil Dead movie, Evil Dead mm-hmm. Rise, is premiered there, and it's getting good reviews. Now that's going to be, and that's a surprise to you. <laughs> I didn't. I, I mean, the trailer looks good. Come on, <laughs> but it's getting it's getting some good reviews. Now, no surprise to me at all. <laughs> okay, so the well, you might have something to say about this because there's a video of I guess the Q and A where a guy yeah. was angry about what he saw. So here, I'll, let me play this a little bit. Okay. So this is at the Q and A, and and I should say, this is I guess the movie just ended, and 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 at the panel we spoilers? got spoilers. No, 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 no spoilers. It was just the Q and A spot. But uh, Bruce Campbell's there. Sam, uh, uh, Sam Raimi's Raimi. there. Sam Raimi's there. They're the producers, and the two stars are in there, and they they're, they're doing the Q and A. And someone from the balcony shouts down. Elevator scene over Lee's head to try and get the schedule. What's that? This movie fucking sucks. What? He's storming out. He's storming. He's He's that's what happened. Yeah. What are you doing here? Get the fuck out of here. You sure? He was, he was trying to um, record it? It looked like, it, for, uh, to me, it looked like Record was, the Q&A? Yeah, it looks like he was recording the, the Q&A, and you could hear a little bit about the, the, the conversation. He's saying, I'm trying to help the marketing on this or something. I, I don't know. I can't really tell what he's saying, but he got really offended when someone asked him to, I think, stop recording or... And then he well, started. I, I think he uh, butted his way into that room. Oh, is that what I it was? It, yeah, I think that was a closed off. Uh, oh, yeah. He's the only one in that balcony that definitely, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it seemed like he was offended. Of He was asked to leave, and I think he was, got really angry. And then he started shouting and he said that this movie fucking sucks. And, you know, everyone in the crowd started booing. <laughs> it was, I just, I thought it was hilarious that, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, you know, people were getting angry about this stuff. <laughs> I'm so excited for Evil Dead Rise. I I, I think Elena looks awesome. The trailers has been great. I loved the uh, remake of Evil Dead. I thought it was so so freaking good. Um, I think it's like one, the one of the best Evil Dead related things. I mean, there's not that many, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I I I it's it's actually kind of surprising. Everything Evil Dead related is actually really good. <laughs> it's it's actually a good franchise. They haven't really had any misses. Evil Dead One is, you know, a, a great kind of like micro budget horror film. Yeah. Uh, e- Evil Dead Two is like one of the best horror comedies, like with the o- probably one of the OG horror comedies, right? Yeah, I would say uh, so. Army of Dog Army of Darkness is just a crazy adventure film. Uh, and then the then the, we got the remakes, right? And the re- the remake is awesome. Um, uh, I I never watched the third season of the TV show. I was a little hit and miss with the Evil Dead TV show, though. I, I thought that the Evil Dead TV show always started off really, really good, the seasons. And then, like, by the time they got to the second half of the seasons, I'd be like, yeah, it's kind of kind of losing me. But then they always win me back by, you know, by the first half of the following season. Never watched the third season, though. Um, but, um, but, yeah, man, that Evil Dead remake was awesome. And I, I, I'm so excited for this new one. I think it looks great. Um. I haven't, you know, I, wa- I, I gotta watch the, the remake. The, it was in 
what we should review it. I, I mean, I, 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 we should review it because I've been wanting to rewatch it anyways because I just got the um, 4K Blu-ray from Shot Factory and I haven't I haven't put it on yet. All right, and I got the I got yeah I got I definitely I gotta, gotta watch, watch it anyways because the new one's coming out. Is it a direct sequel or is it tied in with that with that movie at all? Or? Not really. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, not really. They they say it's loosely a sequel mm-hmm. to to the to the original trilogy, but. Not really. It's 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 a it's its own thing. They might try to connect it later on, but it's a it's its own thing for for now. Okay. Or maybe there's some Easter eggs. Who knows? Uh, did, so you do you not re- really? <laughs> did you read some of the reviews that came out of uh, SXSW? No. Okay. I just know people like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first reactions that people seemed to really dug it. Uh, yeah. And initially, it was supposed to come out on Hulu. It was supposed to be a Hulu exclusive. Then they changed it. Or no, HBO Max was it HBO Max. One of, one yes. Of, one of those. Yes. One of those two. So, and then, then they changed it, and now it's going to be uh, directly to theaters, and which makes sense because you know everyone loves horror now, and it, I think it's going to do very well when it comes out in theaters. Um, yeah, that's about it for for headlines and all that stuff. We're not doing the Damon Lindelof Star Wars. Okay, Rich, uh, we're about done headlines. Is there anything more you want to talk about? Star Wars headline: uh, Damon Lindelof and Justin Britt Gibson exit uh, the. The uh, the new Star Wars feature, which was di- going to be directed by Charmin Obaid Shinoy. I didn't even know about this project. I thought those were Star Trek guys. No, uh, yeah, they they were Star Trek guys, but they, they were um, they, they were got the closest, fired from that too. <laughs> they were the closest one team that was going to be uh, doing a Star Wars project. And they were there. Um, it seemed like there was there was going to be the first one to be uh, mentioned and unveiled on Star Wars Celebration. Oh. Interesting. Mm. Well, yeah, it, it was a couple months ago when that first kind of announced that they were doing a film, and like a week afterwards that you know they announced it, they announced that there was a director attached to it. So it really felt like it was a, you know, a, a project on the go. Now, it, yeah, it's are, a director they, who it's a director who did a couple episodes of Miss Marvel. Oh, series. right, 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 right. Now, does that mean the project is still greenlit, and they just left the project, and they're just gonna? Or what does well, it mean? This is what this is what Lindelof said in SXW. Okay, I will just say that for reasons that I can't get into on this Sunday morning, on this day, mm-hmm. the degree the degree of difficulty is extremely, extremely, extremely high. If it can't be great, it shouldn't exist. That's all I'll say because I have the same association with it as you do, which is it's the first movie I saw sitting on my dad's lap, four years old, May of seventy seven. I think it's possible that sometimes when you hold something in such high reverence and esteem, you start to get in the kitchen and you just go, maybe, and you just go, quote, maybe I should be cooking. Maybe I should be, I should just be eating, unquote. We'll just leave it at that. What? That made no sense to me. <laughs> oh, I, I think he, he's saying, he's uh, saying that I can't be involved because I'd rather just eat the food than rather be part of the kitchen or part of the, yeah, the like, cooks in the kitchen too many is he saying is there too many cooks in the kitchen that's always well, going on he turned in he turned mm-hmm. in their draft okay. of the script in, okay. in 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 mid-february and parted ways okay basically. okay so basically this is this is a movie right this is a movie yeah so basically yeah he's the first draft guy and so this is what happens when you're a screenwriter in hollywood right you know this is what happens when he kind of wrote Prometheus, right? He's he wrote the first draft of that, and that mm-hmm. got rewritten by a couple other people, right? So it just ha- this is normal. I, I, uh, yeah, I don't care. No, but I don't it, care about it, this one. 
<laughs> I don't care. Yeah, but mm-hmm. it, it it seemed like it was gonna he was gonna be in control. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Produce and, it too, right? Right. But no, I don't know. I mean, who knows if this? It, it, the the problem with Hollywood is like a lot. There's you know there there is a term out there called production hell. That's not to that's not to be said lightly. I mean, there is a real problem with, with projects and. You know, a lot of times they get stuck in that production hell cycle and where it doesn't come, nothing comes from it. You know, people kind of spend a lot of their years, uh, uh, they spend their careers, you know, they spend a lot of the years of their, of their themselves working on on projects that never come, come to it, that never come to fruition. I don't really care about that project. I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I I don't got much to say about that. Hmm. Is that it for headlines then? No, also, um, uh. One thing real quick. The Daniels have confirmed that they'll oh. be directing an episode of Star Wars Skeleton Crew. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, and then they kind of finished the, the episode, right? So this is already done. Right. And this is the, the Jude Law series. I think it's interesting because they, th- you know, f- when I heard them on, when they were promoting everything everywhere all at once, they, they kind of said, kind of publicly, that didn't have any interest in directing a Star Wars or comic book movie. Well, maybe they said comic book movie, but. I, I I get it because they think they you know because it's just an episode it's just you know a couple of days work or maybe a week's work a uh, mm-hmm. couple of weeks work worth of work that they could get it, it, it must be just also kind of cool like if you grew up a fan just to kind of be on the set of you know a Star Wars project yeah and also they get to also use the tool they get to open the toolbox and get to use all those you know nice tools that they uh, normally wouldn't get to use right. Right, the, the dome, whatever. Yeah, all the special effects, and they they get experience. But in, in reality, though, I mean, they 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 are going to be kind of limited in their input, right? Because I don't think this is a show that they're creating or anything. No, right? they're just no. directing an episode. Yeah. So I mean, it's very limited what they're going to be able to do, right? Right. I think this is only because of they want experience. They want to get to learn. I really, to- I really think they just they're probably just Star Wars fans, and they just want to. You know, be on a set. I, I know. I it seems like for a lot of people like that grew up in Hollywood, that grew up Star Wars fans, a lot of them just want to, you know, guest star on an episode, or <laughs> yeah. they just want to, they just want to be on the set and like look at all these creatures and just like be in the world. I almost like it almost feels like they just want to take pictures there, and then it's like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll take the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's what. Yeah, m- most likely that was the case here. They get to have a little fun. This is like kind of like a vacation for them, really. Yeah. And they recently signed a, a five-year deal with uh, Universal too. So, oh, oh really? That's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And they did that way back in August. So, Universal, really strange. Yeah, wow. So that that's so kind of that, big that, projects. That's gonna be like a a creative control thing too. That's kind of like a mm-hmm. similar deal that they have with M Night, probably right. Or mostly, uh, probably a, a Nope director. Um, Jordan uh, Peele. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Jordan Peele. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe Universal is becoming the new talent-friendly studio. It's possible, yeah. The new Warner Brothers? Yeah. Now the Warner Brothers went to shit, and now Universal's yeah. like, I'm picking up the slack here. I see opportunity here. I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to sign uh, deals with ta- really great talent. And I'm- Like you know, Colin Trevorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Nolan did the whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. Fuck. Maybe- Maybe not this year, but maybe, you know, next couple of years, Universal is going to make a, a, well, I mean, look, say what you will about Colin Trevorrow, those fucking <laughs> Jurassic World fucking movies, but they make a ton of money. 
Yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, yeah, maybe the next couple of years, they're, they're going to be a, a really major uh, Hollywood movers and shakers. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right, let's get into uh, Cocaine Bear. <laughs> Rich, you saw the movie. We saw mm-hmm. this in... Uh, it's, You've been dying to see this movie. <laughs> Well, I love the idea, right? And yeah. it's available now on, on premium VOD. And uh, I'm sure in a couple of weeks it's going to be available on Peacock. I don't know when, but I'm sure it's going to be readily available on, on streaming sites. But yeah, we got a chance to see Cocaine Bear. Rich, tell us what you thought about it. I thought it was just okay. Uh, I, it, um, I wasn't expecting that much since um, um, I, I knew the, the best parts were going to probably be the, with, from the first trailer or only trailer probably. Hmm. Um, so, um, the, some of the acting was just blah, but some of the acting was pretty good. Uh, blah was O'Shea Jackson. (laughs) 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 Um, uh, it's kind of sad that this is Ray Liotta's final movie. If it is, uh, I don't know if he has something else, but he was doing something where he, uh, in Latin America, where he, he passed away. He was Mm. filming a movie. I don't know if that was completed, but yeah, yeah. It could be, this could be one of his final, definitely one of his final movies, right? Well, movies that'll get a theatrical release. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and I was actually shocked that he's in a lot more, you know, it's not, it's not a cameo. He's actually part of the yeah. film, you know, he's. Yeah. All in Airbright, I, I kind of liked, you know, I thought he did a pr- pretty good job. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um. Yeah, the, the, the movie was just okay to me. Uh, the, 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 the bear stuff worked enough mm-hmm. um I, I had a few laughs and were um, there a lot of carnage at least uh yeah there was carnage but not not nothing like i was going oh mm-hmm. you know like uh you know like oh my god that's so bloody and shit like that mm-hmm. nah nothing uh it nothing 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 new to me but it's no. more comedy yeah yeah uh, it, was, yeah. it was a safe uh gore. well i think I, <laughs> maybe you agree or maybe you disagree i think uh, you know elizabeth banks directed this and it really seems mm-hmm. like a, a in the beginning of the movie it, it seems like he was she was trying to do like a pulp fiction type of violence kind of in a, a darkly comedic way uh where you you know certain uh it was graphic in the in the sense that it's funny but yeah you know, I, I don't know if it worked that well I mean, I think so. Part- let, let, let me ask you really quick for both of you: mm-hmm. Is this worse or better than Piranha 3D? <laughs> I don't remember Piranha. 3D. I vaguely remember Piranha 3D. It's probably better, but I think Piranha 3D is actively a parody or spoofing something, right? It's actively. I mean, yeah. it's, that's the intention. Where Cocaine Bear is, wants to be a really silly. R-rated comedy, but and outrageous. It wants to be outrageous, but I don't think it came off that. It came off being goofy, you know. I, I it's it, you know. I think out of all the genres, comedy is the most. Um, you know, it's uh, miles may vary. You know, for certain viewers, mm-hmm. something some people might think this is a hilarious film, where I think. I may be a little more, more critical when it comes to comedy because I have maybe more of a darker um, idea of comedy. And so I, I wasn't necessarily laughing at this stuff. I, I kind of ro- ro- rolled my eyes in a lot of this stuff. I think, I think the movie didn't work because of all the multiple storylines. You, uh, uh, you got Karen Russell, who's a mother, who's trying to look for her missing daughter, little 
Is, you know, there, is her daughter Brooklyn Prince? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and she goes missing. And how was she? How was she in the movie? Because I know she's she has an Apple Plus show now, and I haven't watched it, but right. you know, I'm a big fan of hers from uh, from the Florida Project. Yeah. That was one of my she favorite awesome movies the, of the past decade. Awesome, the Florida Project. It's you know, it's hard to tell, but she's not really that much in the movie. I mean. She's really kind of playing typical little kid. Does she die? Did we see her get eaten? Did we see no, her no, her but she goes missing. She goes missing. Okay. But uh, uh, so the, the whole idea is like they're looking for her, right? I don't know. It's hard to tell like if she is growing up to become a good actress. It's right? a more comedic role. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, she's it's all kind of goofy and stuff. So it's kind of like sitcom kid. She's yeah. Doing like a yeah. Mary Kate and Ashley <laughs> yeah. House type of performance. Not that bad. I mean, you the, got it, dude. Is that <laughs> what she's doing? <laughs> no, no, not that blatantly kind of, uh, you know. Because uh, that feels like an Elizabeth Banks type of thing. <laughs> I mean, the, here's the, I bring up the Pulp Fiction stuff because they, they are, you know, she's paired up with another kid uh, actor. And, you know, the whole kind of joke is that they get, they snort cocaine or they eat cocaine, you know. Elizabeth Banks wants to be edgy, but I don't think the edge just feels a little worn or a little sanded off, you know. Um, and then, you know, then you got the other kind of storyline here where, where O'Shea, O'Shea Jackson and, and uh, Alden Ehrenreich, you know, they're kind of uh, criminals and they're looking, they, Ray Liotta is their boss or um, Alden is, is his son. It's, it's a convoluted kind of thing, but uh they're trying to look for the for cocaine bar uh bars of cocaine, the bags of cocaine, the bag of cocaine, right? So I, I don't know. It, it, it's a like like I love the premise. I love this cocaine mm-hmm. bear premise. I like I like a bear hyped on uh, on cocaine. That's just funny. It's naturally just funny. Mm-hmm. I think that this movie should have just been a, a parody of like Piranha or a parody of Jaws or a parody of some of those kind of uh. Anim- well, you know, the best the best one of these movies. Is like uh, completely by accident, and it's um, that movie uh, Roar. <laughs> have you have you seen Roar? <laughs> no, I heard of it. You saw you saw Roar Roar. Yeah, that that, that movie that movie is outstanding because they they were basically trying um, they they're basically trying to make like a, a family drama oh, com- okay. dramedy comedy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's like a complete horror film. It's like <laughs> one of the the most tense um, tense films. Uh, You'll ever see um, the uh, Me- with Melanie Griffith. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When she was a little yeah, kid, that, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a perfect example. If Elizabeth Banks just saw Roar and just made like I'm going to do a complete satire of that, you know, I think it would have worked better. This was kind of like trying to be a little edgy. It's set in the '90s or it's set in the '80s, and you don't necessarily get that. You know, there's there's no really kind of you know, cultural uh, distinctions uh, that, you know, they, they could have easily been sitting in the 2000s. You know, or, no, they, they, they basically really don't want, have cell phones. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see cocaine beer yet. I, want, I really wanted it. I was thinking of seeing it in theater, so I really wanted to see it though with a, with a big crowd because I wanted yeah. this to be like the type of movie where you're just kind of like yelling at the screen and like mm-hmm. how, just how ridiculous it is. Because that, that's what Roar was, right, for me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, it's like you're watching this like family movie, but it's completely ridiculous. He's trying to play with the the tiger as the tiger's like mauling his face. You know, yeah. it's, it's hysterical in a way, and then in a horrific way. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that from everything that I'm hearing from some of the critics I trust, and from hearing you guys right now, 
It sounds like Cocaine Bear is not that movie at all. No, no, it's I, not the type of movie that you're gonna like be yelling at the screen. It's more of like a movie you just kind of watch there at home, kind of bored, or you watch it in theaters and you're kind of falling asleep. But I definitely, and, I definitely agree that it was, it's it, it's a kind of film that would be much better with a, a crowd. Yeah, I think it would help. I don't know if it mm-hmm. would would change my opinion. It definitely would help. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I would have a better time if the crowds were into it because I wasn't into it. <laughs> I just, I just, I just felt uh, that I, I expected a little bit better with by uh, Lord and Miller. Yeah. Sometimes there's only so much you can do as a producer, though. Well, the thing is, it's written by the guy who wrote The Babysitters. Um, oh, those movies are horrible. Yeah, on so Netflix. That, that, yeah, that will give you an idea of what the this writer is you know so uh he wrote yeah, the babysitter in the in the sequel the babysitter killer queen i only saw the first one but it was painfully unfunny so uh, i that will give you a little bit of example of how i guess the comedy in the film so it's it's trying to be the thing is it's trying to be clever with its comedy but it never comes off as clever and I think it just didn't work for me uh I, you know I, I agree with some of the critics who have complained about the tone the mixed tone um, uh, or the comedy, you know? So I, unfortunately, cause I was into, it. I wanted to really, really love it, but I just didn't, I didn't, didn't get into it. Um, yeah. Cause the concept's great. Concept's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Well, there you go. Do you like it more than snakes on a plane? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess okay. so. I guess so. I, I wasn't a big fan of snake on snakes on a plane. No, I don't uh, remember it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think I finished it, but I knew it was, it was horrible. Yeah. yeah. Um, really quick before we go, before we end this podcast, uh, let me just give you a recommendation: a movie that came out on Hulu recently, "The Boston Strangler." Uh, this is a true crime, uh, historical crime thriller that's kind of set in the '60s. It, it tells us the story about the two women who dis- uh, kind of broke the story of the Boston Strangler murders in Boston. Of course, <laughs> it stars. Karen Knightley and, and, and Carrie Coon. And so, uh, and they're great together. They have great, I think, uh, this is probably one of my favorite Karen Knightley's films in the recent years. Now I haven't seen many of her films of recent years. I mean, the last thing I kind of saw her was maybe in, I don't know, was the last movie I saw her in. Um, but she kind of like, she, I think she needed this. Uh, unfortunately it came out of Hulu, which I think, I don't think it would help her profile that much, but I think it's a solid, piece of a true crime uh, film now if you like zodiac i think you would like this movie but i think there's a lot of people kind of don't like zodiac right they say it's a little too slow for my taste and i think this borrows a heavy uh, on that film it's basically shot the same way it's kind of told the same way but i was kind of fascinated by the movie uh i'm not familiar with the Boston strangler story and maybe that helped my why uh or maybe the reason why i kind of loved the movie so much or was really into it um it moves pretty quickly it's guy it's it's written and directed by a guy named matt R- ruskin and it's produced by ridley scott it's like it's really well done and i'm, I'm shocked that this was released in hulu i think this could have easily been a theatrical release Maybe not around this time because it's, you know, it's so crowded in theaters right now. But I could see this like, you know, maybe October, September, you know, or October, September release or something like that. But Mm -hmm. uh, whatever the case, it's it's available on Hulu. And it's a a decent film. It's a decent movie. It moves pretty quick. It's uh, uh, if you like it. What was that? um, 
Netflix film uh, uh, with um, the Net- Netflix series uh, Dahmer. It has oh. that kind of vibes. I say more about Mindhunters. Yeah, a little bit of my hunters, yeah. Which is these are all great kind of series, and, and that they feel, it feels it feels very much in that niche, that kind of true crime niche, and and I think I I like this movie a lot better than she said, you know, comparing the two uh, investigative reporters. I think the problems with she said was that, you know, in that in that movie, it's about the Harvey Weinstein case, and the the, the problem with that movie to me was that. We kind of knew where they were going. You know, the whole idea, the whole, it, it, the movie's structured on the idea that did Harvey Weinstein did it or not? Is he really a serial rapist or not? And I kind of, we kind of already know that. So it takes the, the air out of the bubble, uh, essentially. And, and because I don't know that much about the Boston Strangler, I was really uh, engaged with the whole kind of film and I was um, really kind of shocked of, of what happened. And, and I thought I, I thought I just did a much better job of of kind of portraying these these reporters, how they're treated because they're women, how they kind of relate in this kind of environment, this workplace environment, how the it, it, the family life gets involved and all that stuff. I thought I thought that was all much more fascinating than say, she said, and she said it's not a movie that I totally hate. I think it's an okay film, but I think this just kind of does a better job. And maybe it's unfair to compare these two because it's you know two different, you know, you know, investigations, but, uh, it just, I just, she said came to my mind when I watched Boston uh, Strangler and I just uh, made me appreciate this movie more than I, you know, than, than she said, but anyway, it's a, it's a good, uh, um, a good, good solid film for Hulu and it's, you know, it's available now on Hulu. All right. That's it for this episode of Inside Flicks. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for more weekly talks, weekly discussions on film and TV. All right. That's it. We got to go. We're out. Star Trek Picard. What? (laughs) Star Trek Picard's awesome. Really? All right. No more. It's too much. We'll we'll talk about that next week then. We also got to talk about the mayor of of Kingston. Complete waste of time. <laughs> a complete, really? a complete. Oh man, season two is just a complete uh, 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 disappointment. I just, well, we'll we'll talk about it next next week. All right, I love that show. I know. I, know. It, I, I liked it enough, but it just uh, it compared to the first season, it, it's just horrible. Yeah. I, I, we, How far is the season? Did you guys finish it? Yeah, it's the yeah. Fin- it was the finale. The last last this last last one. And so. the whole season was trash. No, no, no. no it just, just progressively got better, worse. Get better. And, yeah. Just, mm. just, just. It's it just you could tell that the. Uh, Come on, Mike. <laughs> it was just. Uh, it's just. Oh man, I don't know. The writers cool. gave up. Well, it was different writers, and mm-hmm. they just weren't as good as Ter- or Taylor Sheridan. You know, so who 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 produces the show and I don't. Know. We'll talk about that next time. All right. Thank you. We got to go. Bye-bye.